Hello and welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. This podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. I'm Pastor Lucas. Hey, and that is our new friend who is with us for this episode. Pastor Lucas is back. Uh, you may remember Lucas from, oh, it was quite a while back. I yeah. think it was episode 98. Okay. I could be well, wrong. You have better memory than um, I do. I haven't gone back and checked, but ep- he was on for the episode for middle school theology. Uh, so that would have been, I believe last fall at some point. Um, so Lucas, why don't you just, we just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. You're going to be joining us for the summer for the episodes that we'll be releasing, uh, up until August. And so it'd be good for our audience to sort of revisit to who you are, what you're from, and maybe even, uh, uh, just, yeah, what you do, um, at Escalon CRC. Sure. Well, first, uh, let me say thanks for inviting me on. It's an honor. And uh, we'll probably get into it a little bit, but it's it's surreal in some ways. Uh, <laughs> I began listening to Reform Podmatics. Oh man, when you first came—I mean, within the first ten episodes, I think. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, yeah so you're a dedicated listener. <laughs> I am. I am. I haven't uh, haven't been as dedicated over the last like maybe month, but uh, that's okay. Think, yeah. I don't I, listen to our episodes myself, so I can't blame you. <laughs> There's some grace there then. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm Pastor Lucas. I've been in full-time ministry since 2018, pastoral ministry. Um, I grew up in Dallas, Oregon, uh, which Never is... Never heard of Dallas, Oregon. What's Dallas, Oregon like? Dallas, Oregon. It's uh, it's a rainforest. It's very rainy. Oh, I always okay. tell people that as we, we're in the Central Valley of California right now. As, as much as it sunshines here... It rained hmm. where I grew up, so, so quite just different. kind of flip it. <laughs> uh, grew up in the Evangelical Free Church, which is um, the church that I grew up in. At least was kind of vanilla evangelical, Baptist. Um, had some Reformed leanings in hindsight, but for the hmm. most part, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, the Evangelical Free Church in my hometown, uh, which is called the Orchard Church. Shout out. I have a friend, my friend Jake, close friend. He uh, he grew up there, and the pastor there was also sort of Calvinistic-ish, okay. uh, although dispensational. Yeah, uh, good guy. His name was CJ. I don't know much about the church now, but anyways, back to your story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know how much you want me to to say, but yeah, just a few more things. I, just feel free to throw out whatever you you feel comfortable. All right. With. <laughs> yeah. Well, in uh, 2012, I graduated high school and went to a a unaccredited Bible college called Ecola Bible College. So shout oh, yeah, out, yeah, yeah. shout out there! Uh, wonderful school. Highly encourage hmm. people to look that up. It's a it's faith building um, yeah. with a ministry you know perspective where they're they're they're, they're trying to teach what does it look like hmm. to survive and thrive in ministry and stuff like that. Yeah. Met my wife there who's from Escalon, California. Say, important thing happened there. It did. Yes, sir. <laughs> first first day I saw her and knew I was going to marry her. 
took her a little bit more convincing <laughs> quite a bit more convincing but uh yeah hey well it worked out in the end it did and it so did. now you're back in her hometown in escalon which for any listener out there escalon is about oh 20 25 minutes uh to the east of ripon so not far away at all so that means lucas and i have been able to hang out and get to know each other as friends and so that's part of why i invited him to be on the show i think he will make a great replacement for Mark for the summer. And so I'm really looking forward to, to having you on. Uh, this is going to be a little different uh, over the summer just because we're going to have a little bit different of a uh, sort of flow and, and banter, I guess you could say. But I think it'll be, it'll be fun. Mark, we will miss you. Uh, you are already missed as this comes out. And so we'll look forward to having you back in August. But uh yeah, so we're shifting gears with you, Lucas. We're happy to have you here. We'll talk a little bit about, of course, your your theological journey hmm. as we get into it. Uh, but in this episode, we're going to be talking about the CRC and why we love it as outsiders uh, to the CRC. Um, I've shared my story a lot over the years uh, with people since I've been here and even with listeners on the show. So if there are any faithful listeners, you will probably know that I am not from the CRC. I grew up like Lucas in a different denomination. I grew up in Baptist and Bible church contexts and sort of read my way into Reformed theology during my college years, went to Reformed Theological Seminary and... uh, yeah, really deepen my faith there, deepen my intellectual understanding of Reformed theology at the very least. Uh, it was an amazing experience for me and found myself then in the CRC because I, I aligned with the the three forms of unity. And that's something we want to talk about uh, today as well. But it's been a long meandering road. Uh, I, I did come to the CRC um, knowing that I I could hold to and did hold to the the three forms of unity, which we'll get into, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort. Uh, in my time in seminary, I, I really fell in love also with the Anglican tradition, and so I'm kind of uh, a theological mutt, I guess you could say. And so I came to the CRC not so much because I was, I, I loved the CRC, I didn't know anyone who was CRC, uh, but I came to it because I was moving home close to my family in California after seminary in Orlando. And I, again, I, I knew that I, I loved the theological tradition of the CRC and uh, it was something that, that I felt a deep sympathy to uh, or with. And so that's sort of how I found my way into the CRC. Lucas, I'm curious, you said you've been in ministry since 2018 full time, uh, but you've only been in the CRC now for almost a year. You've completed your first school year as a youth pastor. Um, what was your theological journey into the CRC out of, I guess, the Evangelical Free Church? Yeah, yeah. That it's it's been a wild ride for sure. One that, uh, looking back, uh, my wife and I can safely say that it's by God's grace that we're here. Uh, we went into full-time ministry. At, well, let me back up. At Ecola Bible College. Um, not Ebola. Not Ecola. Ebola. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not Ecoli. Ecola Bible College. Uh, some may refer it to Ecola Bridal School because uh, people come out. MRS degrees. Yeah, yeah. Come out with a, a wife or a husband, which I did. Came out with a wife. Uh, but at, at that time, which I graduated in 2014, 
both of us were, were sensing a call to ministry, hmm. moved back here to Escalon, and uh, were attending uh, not a CRC church at the time. It was a uh, community church. And that was a part of your theological conviction, right? That you couldn't really go to a Reformed it's true. church. Yeah. Well, in some ways. I think mostly we were just kind of separating ourselves as a new family from... Because my wife sure. grew up at Escalon Christian Reformed Church. Yeah. Whole families there, uh, friends and stuff. So we we're kind of separating mm-hmm. ourselves. But at the time, I was not comfortable in Reformed theology. Hmm. I was a Baptist, a Credo-Baptist. Um, did not believe in uh, Pado Baptist at the mm-hmm. time didn't understand it. Yeah, it's a big obstacle for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, uh, so we attended there for a couple years. Had uh, our first son at that time. Then uh, ended up coming into the CRC. A uh, big part of that was uh, because of Pastor Patrick at the time, who was the mm. youth pastor at Escalon CRC at that time, and he's been on this show. Yeah, he's now at Emmanuel CRC here in Ripon as well. Yeah. Uh, ended up becoming a member at Escalon CRC, recognizing hmm. that I still had some <laughs> some some struggles. But Patrick began to uh, um, mentor me, yeah. and I, I helped with youth ministry and stuff like that, recognizing, working towards going into hmm. full-time ministry. Uh, at the time, I was going to Moody Bible College as mm-hmm. well. Um, getting a degree there in theological studies. Ecola was only a two-year program? It was a two-year unaccredited program. Okay. So uh, did not count towards my undergraduate degree at mm. all, uh, which was interesting, but phenomenal. Yeah. I can't say Sounds enough Sounds like it stuff. was worth it. It was worth it. That's actually where I became a Christian. Hmm. Uh, truly gave my life over to Jesus. And uh, of course, God was working in the background the whole time to lead me there, but that's where I, I gave my hmm. life over to Jesus. Um. Yeah, and then in 2018, I was hired by a ministry called Village Missions. Yeah, that could be a whole episode on its own right there. (laughs) Phenomenal ministry. Uh, But I I never suggest going into ministry the way I went into ministry. (laughs) I I think I did things backwards, and uh, part of that was just Hmm. ignorance. Uh, Part of it was arrogance. Were you still in school at Moody while you were doing this? Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a wild ride going into full-time pastoral ministry, preaching ministry. Uh, how old were you at the time when you started? 24. Wow, 24 years old, in college, preaching every Fre- Sunday. Fresh kids. Wow, okay. <laughs> it was too much. <laughs> uh, like I said, I wouldn't suggest it. But, but you got some good experience under your belt. I did, nonetheless. yeah. Nonetheless. And we look back uh, again, and I'll, I'll conclude with that in a second, hmm. but we, we look back and, and we see the wild ride as as God's good hand of providence uh, entering us into the CRC. Because yeah. at that time, 2018, I, I would never have gone into the CRC. Yeah. Uh, even though I loved it and, and, and trusted the theology for the most part, yeah, I could not have seen myself in the CRC. So. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride, I think, for both of us, it sounds like, finding our way into the CRC. I can remember when I first started reading Reformed Theology and was just sort of uh, picking up anything I could find that was in some way Calvinistic. I was very much in my sort of Calvinist cage stage years. Mm. I looked up 
because there wasn't any reformed or Presbyterian church in my hometown. I looked up churches in Fresno, which was the nearest sort of major city. And there was Fresno, Fresno Christian Reformed Church. And I remember looking it up and thinking like, oh, it's, that could be cool to go to. I I never did. Um, and I, I never really thought much about the CRC beside, besides that. And so when this position here at Ammon Valley opened up, and yes, we say Ammon Valley, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when it opened up, I was just curious and I, I wasn't sure exactly what I was getting myself into as a denomination. But again, I knew that, that the theology was something that I, I enjoyed and appreciated, um, we read a good bit of Bavinkin Seminary, mm-hmm. and so he's sort of the the namesake of the show, of course. And so I've I've really appreciated it and been blessed by the CRC. Uh, I've come to learn more of the ins and outs now over the past six years, and having been to Synod last year, that was sort of my real in- introduction into the institution and the community of the CRC. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've said it a few times, but I am an Article 23 commissioned pastor in the CRC, which means, uh, among other things, that I never went to Calvin Seminary. Um, all Article 6 ministers of the word in our denomination have in some way, shape, or form had to go through Calvin Seminary, whether that was for uh, sort of the certificate after they went to seminary somewhere else or whether they went to seminary at Calvin Sem. And it seems to me that when, it, when, it, when that happens, when you go to Calvin Seminary, you sort of uh, get a little bit more embedded into the denomination. That's one of the hopes, at least, is that you make some connections, you learn about the CRC's history, you learn about things like church order and the way things are kind of done. I don't have a whole lot of that, having never been through Calvin, uh, having been ordained by my, by the classes as opposed to the denomination. So that's a lot of church order stuff that maybe not everyone wants to listen to, but over the course of my time here, I've I've come to know the CRC a bit better and to feel very appreciative and feel a lot of responsibility toward her. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm thankful. It sounds like, like you are as well. But one question I would love to, to sort of chat about before we get into our discussion of the three forms would be uh, our experience of the CRC. Mm. Uh, so far for you, having been in for about 10 months or 11 months, uh, what has your experience been like as an outsider? In the CRC, there's an ongoing discussion about our Dutch identity. Neither my, neither you yeah. or myself are Dutch. Uh, and so we are not only theological outsiders who have joined from different theological traditions, but we are also ethnic outsiders. We are both Anglo looking at us. You can see our, our white skin, uh, but we are we just have a different story. And so have you felt... Uh, warmly received or have you felt held at arm's length in any way uh and yeah what 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 has been your experience so far lucas yeah that's an interesting question um i don't think i have a complete answer to that question <laughs> it's still unfolding yeah it's still i've been here yeah it'll be june 1st will will be one year um part of the reason why it's interesting is because my wife is dutch yeah and grew, and up, grew up in it yeah. in escalon crc so that um poses different, you know, different relational things and stuff. Um, but I think overall it's been wonderful. Um, hmm. And part of the reason why, so I read my way into Reformation theology, Reformed theology, um, and, and and listened my way actually into it as well. <laughs> um, and 
part of what I realized, uh, I, I, there was a growing thing in, inside of me, I guess, that was um, discontent with mm. where we were at and what um, I, I felt like it, where we were at with Village Missions, and this isn't on Village Missions, but just yeah. um, kind of in the Baptist, really vanilla evangelical culture. Um, we, we felt like we didn't have a foundation to stand on. Hmm. Um, we had scripture, of course, yeah. Uh, but we really didn't have anything that unified us that was easy to grab a hold of and, and easy to teach our children. And hmm. uh, it, we didn't have that doctoral, doctrinal standard. Yeah. Um, so coming into the CRC has been really wonderful in that sense, hmm. especially when it comes to the three forms of unity, um, where we really feel like we have... Um, something that we can unite us with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ that is easily understood, that is Mm -hmm. um, easily taught, that is scriptural. Yeah, something we can point to and say this is the sort of standard of of our faith. Yes, yeah, yeah, something we confess together Mm. um, that's historical, historically tested. Um, So that's been a wonderful part of entering the CRC is knowing that my brothers and sisters next to us believe the same thing I believe. Yeah. And experiencing that in our relationship and our discussions and, mm. and stuff like that. Um, I think that we have been warmly received. Hmm. Uh, I good. think that there is some at arm's length, <laughs> but I don't know if that's eth- uh, me being an outsider or not. That might sure. just be being fresh. Yeah. Yeah, it takes time to sort of bed in and get to know people and be a part of a community, especially such a tight-knit community as Escalon or even of our sort of general region. It's just small towns, and so there's there's all of that sort of baked into the cake as well. Yeah. Uh, It definitely took a long time for for myself to feel totally at home. And it wasn't because people weren't gracious or warm or welcoming to me. People absolutely were and still are, uh, but when when people have known each other for their whole lives and they're 60 70 yeah. 80 years old uh it's going to be hard to to feel like i'm fitting in right away and that's Certainly. just that's just growing pains of of living in a new place and uh it's not just because the crc has is is not welcoming to me uh, and i would say overall i've been extremely welcomed by by those in the crc mm. uh, i've i've felt a deep sense of friendship with uh, I guess you could say our colleagues, uh, different pastors from the area. I, I've always enjoyed our classes meetings. Those are always great fun getting to meet other pastors from our uh, classes, central California. Uh, it's, it's a great place. Uh, there has been in some ways a sense in which um, I have sometimes felt uh, a little bit othered, I guess you could say, but before mm-hmm. I even get into that, I also want to say that um yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love the structure of the CRC yeah. in the same way that you you do. Uh, I guess that's not unique just to the CRC. Sure. Uh, any strong denomination with a strong sense of its own identity and history could could offer that. Uh, but absolutely, I, I think as somebody who grew up in a sort of uh, broadly evangelical, I, I was in some churches for a time that were a part of a denomination, a Baptist denomination, the Baptist General Conference. Uh, but then I spent the majority of high school and my college years uh, at a 
I would say post Methodist or church, which had left the Methodist denomination. And so in many ways was theologically Wesleyan and Methodist, but, uh, was detached from any denomination. And that was because they sensed that the United Methodist church was, uh, going in the wrong direction. And so they left in the late nineties, um, 1998 to be exact. And so that meant that our sort of formation, um, it's, it's hard to say. And I think about my old pastor. I love my old pastor and he was a very strong, uh, I would say evangelical in the best possible sense okay. of that word. Uh, he would, he would often recommend us to read guys like John Stott or CS Lewis, uh, he, he read first things quite a bit and would often commend it to me in college. And so he, he was, a, he's a very sharp, uh, pastor and I love him very much. Uh, but just sort of growing up in that milieu, um, I think maybe in spite of my, of my pastor's, uh, good formation that he was giving me that everything else I was getting was just sort of a hodgepodge mm. and, and Christianity felt like a hodgepodge. And so yeah, having some sense of structure in a denomination like the CRC has been very freeing, very, uh, it gives me a sense of spiritual rest. Yeah. Like this, no, this exactly. is a home where I can, I can be, and I can sort of kick my feet up and sit by the fire and enjoy the benefits of, of this great thing. Yeah. Um, so to speak. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for, for that. Uh, and I think that's part of why, like, we will get into why we love the three forms of unity. But before we do, I'll sort of return to what I was saying at first, that there has been some times, and this is part of why I wanted to have this episode, to talk about our our experience in the CRC and with the three forms of unity as outsiders. Uh, there's a big discussion in the CRC about who we are as a mm. denomination. That's been going on, as far as I can tell, for several decades now. And it's really heating up, of course, with the most recent uh, synod and the synod coming up, uh, where we are trying to wrestle with whether we are Dutch, whether we're going to be f- confessional, uh, whether we're going to be uh, just sort of a, a nice church, a welcoming church, uh, and yeah, it's interesting to me that I, I still see so many articles uh, in the banner. Uh, I hear things from people uh, that I'm interacting with, whether online or even in person, uh, say, just kind of talk what I've heard somebody refer to as the Dutch club. Mm. Uh, I was born in the CRC, I was raised in the CRC, and I would hate for the CRC to to change and I want it to be a place for all people who've just grown up in the CRC just like me. Um, and so because of my love for the theological tradition in the CRC, I've noticed that with some pockets of, of our denomination, I have been held at arm's length because I love the CRC for reasons that are in some ways at odds with the reasons that they love the CRC. I don't have those familial, historic traditional ties to the CRC. Uh, my grandpa didn't go to Calvin College. <laughs> my grandpa wouldn't have even known what Calvin College was. Uh, he had, I'm sure he'd never heard of it. And so I, I don't have any of that sort of uh, affinity for this denomination for those reasons, but I do have an affinity because the theology of the Reformed Church, the theology of particularly the Dutch Reformed Church, mm-hmm. um, even of the neo-Calvinists in the 
in the 19th century uh, has been life-giving to me. Yeah. It has been profoundly helpful for me. And so I came into the CRC loving the theology, yeah. not loving the people because I didn't know them. Um, I was happy to get to know them and love them. And I, I feel that I have, but I came in, I can remember my, my interview weekend at my, the town hall meeting at, here, here at Almond Valley. Um, people asking me why I wanted to come to a CRC mm. church. And I didn't really have a great answer to that because I was still so new. I'd only read the Wikipedia page for the CRC. Oh, what okay. is the CRC? Uh, but I knew that it was Dutch in its tradition, and I loved Bavink. We again, we read Bavink quite a bit in seminary, and I loved Bavink. Every time I read Bavink, I felt like here is a man who really knows God's word. He listens well to God's word, and he also knows his time. He's speaking into the modern world in which he lived in the 19th century. I felt as somebody who really started to love historical theology. Uh, that he was a systematic theologian who I'd never seen someone be as good of a historical the- theologian. I don't know, it didn't word that well. Uh, but in his systematic theology or the Reformed dogmatics, he gives a ton of historical information. Mm. That was really a, a huge deal to me. He was doing a lot of exegetical theology and a lot of historical theology and can marshal forward all this knowledge that he had about obscure church fathers or medieval theologians who had to say something important on on various issues. Uh, and so I knew that if this is the kind of tradition that, that the Dutch Reformed Church has produced, I would very much like to be a part of it. Uh, and I, I remember reading the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort in seminary and thinking these are beautiful. I actually prefer them to the Westminster hmm. Standards myself. Uh, I do too. And so I was excited about the theology of the denomination. And there have been times where I have sensed that people view people like me, people in our denomination view people like me or like you with a little bit of suspicion hmm. because we don't have the sort of same investment that they do in the denomination. If this denomination were to go in a different direction than they often want it to with Synod 2023, they will feel that they've lost something. If, if the denomination splits... I get that. They will feel that people that they know and love will be divided. They've people who they've grown up with and lived with, their grandparents and their, their you know their aunts and uncles. If our denomination splits, they will lose something great. Um, and I don't have that same sort of investment. I do recognize that uh, it won't have that sort of same impact for me. Um, but I, I do want to say want to say and insist that our denomination is not about our just our Dutch heritage or history, and I don't say that lightly. Or I don't want to sound rude or 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 crass about that uh, or flippant. But I, I I do want to say if we're going to uphold our ideals as a denomination, it will it will look like holding on to. Uh, what our tradition has taught and believed and confessed uh, since the time of the Reformation. So that's kind of my long high horse thing there uh, to lead into then this discussion about the three forms of unity. Uh, It has seemed to me since my arrival here that these have sort of fallen by the wayside in the Mm -hmm. CRC. Before I arrived at Ammon Valley, I was at an Episcopal church in Orlando uh, it's one of the few, you could say, orthodox uh, 
regions of the Episcopal Church would be Central Florida. Uh, and it was interesting to me that the prayer book, the 1979 Episcopal prayer book, which is a very controversial prayer book, if you know your Anglican friends, uh, and one of the things that many of the conservatives in Central Florida didn't like about the 79, though they, they mostly liked the 79 prayer book, but that's a different discussion, they would often point out that lamentably our uh, our confession, they would say, the 39 articles are in the back of the prayer book, kind of just pushed off to the side under historical documents. And they don't get the sort of uh, foregrounding that they, that they deserve. And so they kind of are disregarded. And it's true. In the Episcopal Church, it's quite clear that uh, historical identity and Catholicity, the historic beliefs of the church, have kind of been disregarded. Mm. Uh, and I've, I've noticed some similarities between that and the, the CRC. Uh, I, I, I think in general, it's easy for denominations like the CRC, and there are several others too, to eventually push the, these kinds of things to the side. Uh, but maybe we should just ask, why have we found it so helpful? We've talked a little bit about structure, you and I, um, why have we found it so helpful? What do we love about these three documents, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort? Yeah, I was just reflecting on what you were saying. I was thinking about um, R.C. Sproul talks about how when he came to the Reformed faith, it was like a second great awakening for him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like rediscovering his faith. And I um, I, I, I think about there, there's that um, interesting um, kind of digitally manufactured picture that mm. if you look at it for long enough and you unfocus your eyes, all this random streaking suddenly becomes a tiger hmm. or suddenly becomes a, a, a person holding their child or something. And it's not super defined, hmm. but uh, you this kind of nonsense picture, if you can unfocus enough or maybe rightly focus, you should say, I should yeah. say. Um, becomes this incredible picture. Hmm. And I think, um, just reflecting on what you were saying, I was thinking about um, one of the reasons why I love the CRC and I love Reformed, and and that was my experience too, coming to Reformed faith Hmm. was like a second great awakening. It was all of a sudden the puzzle pieces fit together. I had the puzzle pieces. Yeah, that's a good point. That's how how it felt for me. Exactly. I mean, it was, and I can't, I can't, the... The emotional side of it, I can't explain over uh, over a podcast, but um, it was a beautiful thing to see God's truth fit together the way I believe it's meant to fit together. Yeah, I remember having that thought. It all makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I can't believe it all actually makes sense. Exactly. And that's where it was a struggle until I came to the Reformed faith because like things just didn't make sense yeah. the way that... It, they should make sense. Part of that might might be my brain development. You know, I wasn't ready to understand <laughs> sure. things deeply until I was 25 and my male brain was fully developed. I don't know. But yeah, I definitely had that moment in my early 20s where, oh, wow, this is profound. All these disparate parts are fitting together. Yeah. And I think that's the strength of the, the three forms of unity. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot I can say about it and I will say about it. But um, I think it brings... And again... Um, I know Zach agrees and Mark agrees that the three forms of unity are only as good as they are biblical, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we don't elevate them above Scripture. Scripture is our authority, and what they are is they 
they clarify it for us. They, mm-hmm. It explains it and and um, gives it to us in a uh, in a teachable and understandable manner. And I love that about the three forms of unity that um, it does provide us that really easy and solid foundation to stand on and then teach. Uh, hmm. It's very profitable in that sense. It's very pastoral and um, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful for us to give a little bit of a, just a reflection on what each of these are. Okay. These, these get talked about a lot, obviously, in the CRC, and especially in in uh, conservative churches of the CRC, such as both of ours. Uh, but what are they? Uh, people are probably quite familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question and answer format, which is meant to be used predominantly for for young Christians, especially for those uh, sort of uh, under the age of 18 who are being reared in the home and in the church and in the school to know the Christian faith and to understand uh, a lot of its basics and to know it, not just intellectually, but I love how the, the Heidelberg Catechism is so intent on knowing it salvifically, hmm. knowing it for myself, not just these abstract concepts and truths about what scripture says, but uh, it, it actually puts salvific words in our mouths. Um, and I, I mean that to, to say that it talks about like, what are the benefits of the gospel for me? It, it's, it, it often goes back to that and how am I assured and the language that it uses is is very personal and people often say it's very warm it is warm I don't disagree with that uh, with that uh, way of describing it um, but we're, we're we're sort of familiar with it the Heidelberg Catechism uh, goes through uh, guilt grace and gratitude or sin salvation and service yeah. there's different ways of breaking it up uh, it sort of weaves into the whole catechism, of course, the Apostles' Creed as it works through what the gospel is. That's actually question and answer 23, what's the gospel? And it gives the articles of the, the Christian faith as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and so then it works through each line of the Apostles' Creed and and wants us to see that there's a benefit, there's a gospel, there's a good news in each part of mm. the creed. Uh, and so I love to point that out to students to say that the gospel is not just that Jesus died for you. It's that Jesus was incarnated for you. He died for you. He was raised from the dead for you. He ascended into heaven for you. He sits at the Father's right hand mm. for you. He's coming back again someday for you. And he will judge you and you will stand either in him or in yourself. Amen. And there's the the Holy Spirit who is for you. There's the Catholic Church for you. All these things are good news for you. The, the gospel is is much bigger than just uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, it's not less than that, uh, but it is it is even more than that. And so if we if we read the the catechism, we will we will learn that I think. And that isn't to disregard the the seriousness, the the beauty of penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, but it is to say that the gospel, I think, is is bigger, yeah, um, bigger than just that. That is a core, crucial, central mm-hmm. part of the gospel. Uh, but it, it is not everything. But maybe we're less familiar then with the the Belgic Confession. Um, in our church, we we do read it quite often. I would say uh, in different worship services, um, particularly if we're doing the sacraments, we may turn to its section. Mm. Uh, how would you describe the the Belgic Confession? If you're, if there, let's just say there's a high schooler listening to this and they're not really sure 
what the Belgic Confession is about. Uh, what is your understanding of it? Yeah. Well, and admittedly, uh, the Belgic Confession is probably the one that I'm the least familiar with out of the three. And um, uh, like Zach mentioned, I'm much more new to the CRC and to yeah, the three man. forms. Of you get unity. a free pass. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can just give us what you think. <laughs> no, but no, it's it, it, it is a description of uh, of the core tenets of our faith. Yeah. Um, it it gives us that that foundation of hey this is this is what we believe is foundational doctrinally yep. to our faith. Um, so it's kind of like a yeah a doctrinal statement. That's yeah. you see a lot of evangelical churches on their websites. They'll have a sort of doctrinal statement. Non-denominational churches. Here's sort of the main things that we believe that we're sticking to, and other things may be a little bit more up for debate. But these are things that are are very very central. Yeah, and I think and it is that yeah. And I think it's something that um, most Christians can come to and agree on. I don't think there's a lot that uh, a lot of people would disagree on because it is a lot of it's those core tenets of our faith. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that are shared in the Belgic Confession. And the Belgic Confession was written by a a man from Belgium, hence the name yeah. Belgic Confession. Uh, and so it was written by Guido de Bray or Guy de Bray. And it was essentially written to publicize the Reformed churches of, of Belgium, of uh, the Netherlands, that sort of region of Europe. And it was meant to publicize in the sense that it was supposed to say, here's how we are, on the one hand, Catholic and standing in the line of the historic church. And so you see in the Belgic Confession, several of the opening articles uh, are a confession of historic Trinitarian uh, belief. Uh, and so they're saying we are standing in the stream of the early church. Uh, we're not, we're not um, innovating here. We're not coming up with new doctrine. Uh, but then there are ones that distinguish uh, the reformed churches uh, in, in the Netherlands and Holland and in Belgium over against Roman Catholicism on the one hand and Anabaptists on the other. Uh, and so that's that's another interesting point. That's actually going to be a, an overture for Synod this year as mm-hmm. well about removing language about Anabaptists, condemning the damnable heresies of the Anabaptists. Okay. Uh, which interesting. Uh, I would I would be against that removal of yep. that. Actually, I think that not not that I I hate Anabaptists. I have gr- I have great friends that are Anabaptists, uh, but I think that. Reformed theology stands in a in major contradistinction Agreed. to Anabaptist theology in many different uh, doctrines, uh, particularly with sacraments or with church-state relations. Uh, and so, I think that it would be okay to keep those in our in in the uh, Belgic Confession. But the Belgic Confession does stand to sort of uh, say, "Here's who we are to the broader church," and so the Belgic confession is different than the Heidelberg Catechism in that the Catechism is meant to be a simplified teaching tool for young Christians, baby Christians, you might say, and for adults as well. Uh, But the Belgic Confession is sort of speaking in a tone of voice to the wider church, the wider watching world, so that people from the outside may see uh, what we're about. Uh, So there's 37 articles, uh, so it's in some sense quite short. And it sort of outlines the major tenets of our belief. Uh, there's lots of things that other Protestants would have major agreement with. And there's some things like the article on predestination that 
other Protestants may not agree with. And so it sort of uh, places us uh, within the greater spectrum of Christianity. And then finally, of course, there is the Canons of Dort, perhaps the most controversial (laughs) of the three forms of unity. what do you know about the canons of Dort, Lucas? <laughs> I'm sure you know something. If you've, oh, yeah. if you've oh, yeah. read your way into Reformed theology, this is a hurdle that everybody must uh, <laughs> climb and get over in one way or another. Well, I, yeah, I mean, certainly the can- from the canons of Dort came the famous tulip, Yep, uh, which is kind of a summation or an easy abbreviation of... of um, some of some of our tenets of faith, what we what we believe is reformed, mm-hmm. um, which is often what Calvinism is kind of reduced to. I, I think I, I don't yeah, think unfortunately. that's unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, I think that's not a positive. Calvinism is much more than just the the tulip. Yeah, um, but the canons of Dort were a re- response to some improper teaching. Is, is it the uh, yeah. Arminian. The Arminian. Uh, not Armenian. I always see that online. It's not, we don't have any problem with Armenian people. Uh, they are made in the image of God, just like yeah. the rest of us. <laughs> it's Arminian for Jacob Arminius. Yes. Uh, or Jacobus, Jacobus, I don't know how you say it in Latin, Arminius. And so Arminian theology is just referring to a particular man. But... Yeah, and uh, just surrounding conversations on on the free will and God's sovereignty yep. and and uh, predestination and answering those questions according according to Scripture and this is where I think we end up in um, strong disagreement with or I, I should maybe phrase it this way other people end up in strong disagreement with us on these these subjects. Yeah, it's a bridge too far for many. For many, yeah. Now I would say this is a, a phenomenal application of of God's uh, word hmm. in, in these these topics. Yeah, yeah. Um, so of course, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Yeah, those are the five sort of headings, uh, the major articles of the Canons of Dort. Uh, it gets into. Uh, a lot of the finer points having to do with each of these things, but it it it, it is in this sense a lesser document uh, than the others, yeah. in the sense that it's responding to a theological controversy, and so it's not so much putting forth a positive statement of here is what we believe and are trying to teach, as it is a clarification and a response to something. Now, this doesn't in any me in any way, shape, or form mean that it's it's a lesser document in terms of its importance. In fact, the Synod of Dort was uh, perhaps the the most ecumenical synod of the post-Reformation period, or maybe even if you want to include the Reformation itself. There were there were not just Reformed Christians from the Netherlands, which is what most synods would have been. There were Reformed Christians. They invited and had delegations from all over Europe. Uh, they had they 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 wanted to make sure that this was a consensus document uh, that, that had the opinions of others uh, to be consulted, and so it lasted for uh, I would say over six months. I forget exactly. Yeah, I know it started time. in sixteen eighteen, the end of sixteen eighteen, and went to sixteen nineteen. Uh, and there were there were many discussions that they had. They met uh, 
several hundred times. I think. Yeah. I think basically every day they were probably in discussions, and so it's an interesting. Yeah. The history of it is very interesting, and I highly encourage a book from uh, Dr. Robert Godfrey hmm. uh, called "Saving the Reformation: The Pastoral Theology of the Canons of Dort." Hmm. They, he spends probably the first quarter, first half of the book. Um, discussing the history of the Canons of Dort, which oh, man, is fascinating. That's, that's awesome. And I've then never read the book. Yeah, and then he does. Um, he just breaks down hmm. uh, each, each. Uh, well, everything. He even gets into all of the denials. Yeah, and uh, that's another thing to say just about its uh, its substance, its content. Yes. You will find lots of affirmations and denials, so you can tell that they are really trying to get into again the finer points to say here's what we do believe and here's what we mean by by different teachings that we hold to and here's what we don't mean we deny this and we reject the the errors of the arminians and so those five points were never meant to be the sort of fundamentals of calvinism uh, but they have become the sort of uh the the points of calvinism that are the most hard to swallow for a yeah. lot of people well, and, and we so, can even get more specific in that. I mean, I think once you get to unconditional election and limited atonement, th- those are really the two, and especially limited atonement, yeah, is where people really grade against. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I find the tulip to really actually be a a, 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 a very encouraging and restful type of document, hmm. um, a set of set of uh, principles because yeah, I, I yeah, and there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah. But at the end of the day, oh yeah. W- what it's getting at is w- we can trust in the complete goodness and sovereignty of God to care for our human souls which if left to our own devices we would hate God and hate our neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, the sovereignty of God, that was sort of the uh that was the crux of my conversion to reformed theology. Okay. I I really struggled with the f- like with feeling that well, you know, how could how could we not have the free will to choose God? And I was just sort of a dyed-in-the-wool, I guess, Wesleyan without really mm-hmm. knowing I was a Wesleyan uh, or Arminian. Um, and so it took me a while to come around to it. But once I once I did, once I saw it, uh, I've, I've never been able to see it the other way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You can't unsee it. Well, the puzzle pieces came together, right? Yeah. I, I, I definitely have backed away from my cage stage days where I sort of wanted every other Arminian person I knew, knew to become a Calvinist just like me. Uh, and at that point, the five points were all I really knew or cared about. Mm. I didn't really care about historic reformed orthodoxy or uh, anything of that sort. I just wanted people to believe in predestination. Uh, but, but the reason for that is because I wanted people to know the joy of 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 what God does for us in Christ. But yeah. before we do good or bad, God God choosing us, and we we can rest in in His goodness and His grace. Uh, and so, yeah, there were some struggles even coming into that belief and wrestling with, well, why aren't all predestined? Uh, and I would be lying if I said that. Uh, there's still some ways that I hear people articulate the five points that uh, don't really sit well with me or mm-hmm. resonate with me. Uh, but I think that the the whole system of the of theology of of Calvinism, uh, or at least what's come to be known as Calvinism, uh, I think it's reflected in Scripture, and I 
I don't disagree with it at all. Uh, and it's a great joy to know that God is sovereign. God is in control and he is working all things for his glory and for our good. Amen. And those are sort of basic truths. Those have never left me and I, they, they never will. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, <laughs> yeah, Lord willing. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I love the canons of Dort. I love these, these doctrines because as you said, they are restful. They yeah. are pastoral, uh, which not a lot of people, I, I think, see, hmm. um, especially with the canons of Dort. It is seen, it is seen and spoken of in many circles um, in the CRC, it seems, with a little bit of disregard or even some disdain. Hmm. Um, but it's it's a treasure, uh, as, as all of these are. And as we reflect and maybe close up things here a little bit for this episode, uh, Maybe we can just go to Scripture and see what the Scriptures teach us about uh, about confessions and about confessing our faith. Many people would say, you know, no no creed but Christ. Yeah, which I is just, a creed. I just need the Bible, and that is a creed. Uh, and the problem with, with such a way of thinking is, of course, that anything goes when nothing is, is written down. Uh, and so... It's it's good for communities mm. to write out their and clarify their beliefs yeah. and their convictions so that they can actually discuss them and in time possibly even change or edit them, uh, which is always open for debate. Uh, the CRC we do have the power to change uh, our confessions and catechisms and so on. Uh, I don't know that we will, but we've had we've there has been there's a history of of slightly making some nuanced changes to things. Um, and so that, that remains a possibility because these aren't scripture and they're only good, as you said, insofar as they reflect God's word. But I do think that the scriptures give us plenty of reason to, to use things like this. Um, one such passage, which isn't an explicit or direct uh, command to write out your beliefs and pass them on that way. But I think Romans 10 is, is a helpful uh, sort of proof text, you might say. Uh, Romans 10 verses 9 through 10, where Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So again, it's not saying we should outline uh, our faith or write something like a creed, uh, but we are to confess publicly. And when we com- confess our faith publicly, uh, we will want to confess it in unity with, with those around us. Exactly. And so to, yeah. to do that, to not just con- confess our own idiosyncratic faith, but to confess a an objective faith that is rooted in history and uh is confessed by a community around us. And we, if we want to confess it in unison, as yeah. it were, we will need to have it written out. And so I don't think it's wrong. I think it's actually quite prudent yeah. and maybe even necessary to write out our beliefs as the church has done with the early creeds and then with the confessions. Yeah. And I, I think I think if you don't write out your beliefs, you're not any less Christian right. per se. That's true. That's not what we're saying. Um but as Zach said, and I think this is where we, we get into some tremendous benefits of having a confessional uh, culture and mm. a creedal culture, is uh, that 
the person next to me, well, let me back up a second. Paul often talks about how we are to defend our faith mm-hmm. and how we are to know our faith. Mm-hmm. And the Bible, we, do, we, we must recognize, is a big book yeah. full of a lot of truths. And when we, when we have these confessions, these are easy, um, learnable, mm-hmm. small passages that we, we can understand a lot of truth um, and answer that that uh, w- w- and and give an answer to yeah. questions very quickly and very easily, knowing that the person next to me in the pew is going to have the same answer, mm-hmm. and that's where we get into the muddy water when you when we don't have these confessions, um, and, and the person next to you defends their faith, and all of a sudden you realize, hey, that's actually not what I believe. Yeah, and I'm not saying that again to ha- having these confessions or not having these confessions confessions make you less Christian, hmm. but they make you tremendously more prepared yeah. and far more <laughs> confident that the person next to you uh, believes that you're in unity with them. And when and, and then even on top of that, you can know when you are not in, in total agreement with them, hmm. which is helpful, I think. <clears throat> yeah, so having it out, whether it's on paper or not, doesn't really matter. Uh, but having something that's... Uh, objective that you can be discussed and worked through is really good for for coming up with developing unity and actually we see i i would argue creeds in the scriptures uh one good example of this would be i think maybe the best example there's a few but the best would be first timothy three sixteen, mm. uh, where if in most english translations today it will actually be broken down uh according to its cadence, because they want you to see that this is probably a creed. Paul says this, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then there's a a colon there. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the way that this is written uh, makes it quite clear that this would have been a easily memorizable statement that people could pass on. You have to remember in the apostolic period, most people aren't able to read. And so how would the Christian faith be passed on if people weren't just able to hand somebody a fully full fledged 66 books of the Bible edition of, of God's word? Well, maybe they would have access through their local synagogue that they would meet at or their local church, uh, their gathering, to the Old Testament, but that would, there would probably only be one edition of that in their community, and so it would be kind of like going to the public library to consult it, and there would be the certain priests and scribes who would know it well, and maybe your pastor, depending on your context, who would know it well, he's, he's read it, and maybe you have a letter or two from Paul or from James or from Peter, and so you have a few things of the New Testament. How does the faith get passed on in such an environment? Well, the best way to do that, I would argue— would be to come up with easily memorizable, passable statements that would be easy to pass along. And in this sense, this is this is the tradition of the church. Uh, this is the passing on, the traditio of faith, uh, handing down of, of, of our belief from one person to the next. And to do this and to standardize it in a way that would make it consistent throughout the, the Christian world would be to put it in bite-sized statements. And so it makes perfect sense for the church to historically use creeds such as the one here in 1 Timothy 3 or most scholars would say that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is another mm-hmm. one 
or even in some sense, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, where Paul talks about what he delivered to them as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance Mm -hmm. with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and then to the twelve. It sounds like Paul is sort of riffing on a known creed, a proto-creed, if you will. And so, Ever since the earliest days, I think that there's good reason to believe that Christians have been uh, making objective um, statements of faith that can be publicly passed along and publicly thought through and discussed and taught uh, so that the faith may not just be what, what so-and-so down the street says about Jesus, but maybe something that is objective and known and provable even. And so there's a lot here. We could even probably go on and discuss more, but we need to bring this episode to a close. Uh, Lucas, thank you again for joining us for the summer. We are looking forward to uh, hearing more from you. Yeah, thank you. Grace and peace, you guys. We'll see you next time. Yeah.